0: I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. It's the News Roundup. President Biden is taking executive action today to protect abortion access two weeks after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. The January 6th investigation hearings continue. Today, White House counsel to former President Donald Trump, Pat Cipollini, is expected to speak before the committee after weeks of pressure. And a new report reveals failures in the police response to the shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. We're starting with the latest on the mass shooting at an Independence Day parade in Highland Park, Illinois, that left seven dead and dozens injured. Joining us is Mariah Wolfel. She's a city government reporter at WBE, In Chicago. Also with us is Josh Meyer. He's the domestic security correspondent for USA Today. A 21 year old man confessed to firing more than 80 rounds into a crowd at a July 4th celebration in Highland Park, Illinois, killing seven people and injuring dozens. Mariah, first tell us what we know about the attack at this point.
1: Sure, absolutely. So this happened around 10 o'clock a.m., 10 minutes after the parade got started in High, in the downtown area of Highland Park. This parade happens every year, as many Fourth of July celebrations do. The shooter um, was positioned on a roof overlooking the parade. And as you said, um, police say he confessed to Um, Being on that roof, targeting and aiming for victims and shooting um, more than 80 rounds um, into a crowd, Uh, seven confirmed dead right now. There's, you know, victims in critical condition in hospitals, Um, dozens, others were shot or injured. Um, you know, by the stampede as people were running. Um, The shooter has been uh, denied bond and has a hearing set for later this month. Um, after, After he fired into the crowd, he fled the scene, dropped his gun, near the scene of the parade, and then drove about 100 miles to Madison, Wisconsin, where he contemplated another attack, decided not to, and then turned back around and was arrested around 6.30 p.m. So you've got, you know, from around 10 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. when he was caught, just 10 miles, you know, from the, from the shooting.
0: How has the Highland Park community responded?
1: Um, They are calling themselves Highland Park Strong, really coming together to provide, you know, just support to one another. There's a resource center that the FBI is running out of the Highland Park High School, which, you know, is now turned into a, a, a meeting place for victims, anyone who's been traumatized emotionally or physically by the shooting. You know, I was out there on Wednesday and people... We're flocking to it. Really, a lot of people trying to get help for their small children who they're struggling to talk to about this and want to make sure that their kids are processing it correctly. Um, there's counseling there. There's government aid. There's financial assistance. And then just the just the really um, devastating vigils that you see after mass shootings. There are, um, you know, there's... there's there's uh, points near the parade where there's a, there are testaments to the victims, the seven victims. There's Their are pictures are up near the route of the parade. There are bouquets laid on the ground. Um, but yeah, a community that's really shook. And I'm sure there are plenty of people who I've talked to people who have said, you know, there are neighbors and, and people who are at the parade who want to help but just can't leave their home right now and can't stand to... Uh, go back to the downtown area of Highland Park. Josh, what has the
0: national response been to this latest mass shooting?
2: Well, I think people are still trying to come to grips with with all of the different mass shootings. I mean, you know, this is not a new phenomenon, of course. I mean, school shootings in particular, but also mass shootings in general. But, you know, we've had, uh, you know, many of them. I mean, we had um, Buffalo, New York. We had U- Uvalde. We've had this. And I think people are really trying to to rally around some kind of momentum for gun control. I mean, as you, um, as you know, uh, President Biden last uh, last month uh, got passed what he said was the most comprehensive gun control legislation in 30 years. But even that doesn't really address some of the fundamental problems. Obviously, it didn't stop this shooter. So I think people are really trying to just figure out um, what to do next, and 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 unfortunately, where the next shooting might happen.
0: Maria, what can you tell us about the Highland Park community?
1: So the Highland Park community is heavily Jewish uh, and and largely white, um, but there is a large Latino population as well. It's the second largest you know demographic in that community. Very closely um, knit community, a wealthy suburb, you know, around 30 miles outside of Chicago. Um, you know, as you can see from the two of the victims, um, you know, were from Mexico. One was visiting from Mexico. One was originally from Mexico. Um, there are, you know, uh, organizations in Highland Park who are trying to ensure that there are Spanish-speaking resources and counseling for people um, who have been impacted by the community, but. Um, but yeah, that, that's what I would say about that,
0: that town. The father of the gunman will now be criminally investigated in connection with the attack for sponsoring his son's gun application. Here's Robert Cremo Jr., the father of the gunman, speaking with ABC News about that application.
3: Like, that's, that's, all, that's all it was, the
4: consent form to allow my son to go through the process. They do background checks, whatever it entails. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. And either you're approved or uh, denied.
0: The family's attorney said on Twitter that, quote, the system is trying to make this about parenting. It is important to know the Illinois State Police renewed the gun card when their son turned 21, long before this, without any involvement from his father, end quote. Mariah, the gunman had two run ins with police prior to this attack, and Illinois has a red flag law on the books. How was he able to legally obtain weapons?
1: So in Illinois, you have to be over 21 to get a FOID card unless you're sponsored by a a legal guardian. And so obviously you said that his father sponsored him, claiming he wasn't aware of a a troubling September 2019 run-in with the police, where a family member called to report that he had threatened to, quote, kill everyone. um, And police at that incident took away 16 knives from the home, um, a dagger and a sword, and then filed a clear and present danger report with the Illinois State Police. That's um, where law enforcement or school officials have to complete this report when when they determine that someone is an imminent threat of harm to themselves or others. Then just months later, um, the shooter applies for this A so-called FOID card, which is the license to carry a gun in Illinois. That process is controlled by our Illinois State Police. In in 2019, that's when his father sponsors him, the Illinois State Police says that at the time the FOID card application was submitted, there was not a clear and present danger um, that the report, the clear and present danger report filed with them was not sufficient to deny a FOID card to the shooter. Typically, the reasons, um, you know, FOID cards can be denied is, uh, you know, committal to a mental health facility, a domestic violence charge, a felony conviction on your record. Um, the shooter at in, in 2019 was not arrested um, and officials had determined, you know, officers had determined that mental health providers were going to uh, we're handling this situation, and so, and then, and then there's the red flag law as well, which allows any family member or law enforcement officer to file what people call a gun restraining order against someone who they believe should not possess weapons. Um, that would allow a ju- you have to go to court for that. That allows a judge to temporarily take away someone's weapons. Now, at the time. Of the incidents with police, the prior incidents with police, the shooter did not have a floyd card or guns, um, but yes, theoretically, uh, his family could have, you know, pursued a red flag restraining order. Um, that would have prevented him potentially from getting a gun within six months. You have to renew that every six months uh, in Illinois as well.
0: Josh, you recently wrote about how shooters in these mass casualty events are getting younger. What are some of the trends
2: you see? Well, unfortunately, um, Jen, the, the, the several trends. One, they're, get, they're getting younger. Uh, two, they're getting more lethal. And three, they're, it's happening with more frequency and you know, I talked to a lot of former FBI officials, uh, homeland security officials, uh, experts, and what they said is, is that um, you know, there's no real through line in terms of connecting what all these attacks are. But there are some similarities here. One of them is that they have this quest for recognition; that they really want people to, to, to know who they are. Um, and I think it's too. Um, blunt to say that they're just trying to be famous, but they really are crying out for some sort of help and recognition. And one way to do that, one way to gain notoriety overnight is to open up and, uh, you know, do a mass shooting and kill a lot of people, unfortunately.
0: Mariah, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jen. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor,
4: BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Struggling with work or any of life's roles can lead to a lack of motivation and detachment. Prioritize your mental health by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com 1A.
0: Now, let's bring in two new voices. Tolu Oloranipa is a Washington Post politics reporter. Tolu, it's great to have you.
4: It's great to be with you.
0: And Mary Harris is with us, the host of Slate's daily news podcast. Mary, welcome back. So nice to be here. Thanks, Jen. President Biden is signing an executive order today to protect abortion access. This comes after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade two weeks ago. Mary, what's included in this executive order?
6: So what it's really doing is... First of all, I should say at the top what it says when you look at the press release from the White House. It says the president firmly believes that what needs to happen here is that Congress needs to act to enshrine the right to an abortion in law. So he's basically saying this needs to happen at the legislative level, but I'm going to intervene in the small ways that I can. And this is going to be an executive order that really looks to the Department of Health and Human Services to take action to preserve access to abortion and information for people who are pregnant, women and families. And it'll be interesting for me to see how far it goes, because, for instance, one of the things that is being talked about here is protecting access to medication abortion. And, you know, If the HHS is doing that, it raises this question, are you sending medication abortion into states that have banned abortion? And what is that set up? So I'm really curious to hear what happens at the White House today, because I think there are ways this could go that could be bigger or smaller, if you know what I'm saying.
0: Tolu, there've been questions about how much authority Biden has in the face of the Supreme Court's ruling Is it clear how much this order will actually protect abortion rights, particularly in states that have blocked them?
4: It's not clear. There's still a lot that remains to be seen. What is clear is that uh, nothing that Biden is able to do by executive order will overturn what happened in the Supreme Court, which has restricted access to abortion care in a number of states where uh, there are trigger laws or where there are already laws in the books making uh, those rights that had been uh, essentially the law of the land due to the Roe versus Wade decision 50 years ago, uh, no longer the case for, for women across the country. So there are some small things that Biden may be able to do and they may have uh, some level of impact, but uh, the, the, the Trump card in all of this has been the Supreme Court's decision. And unless uh, there is some kind of codifying of abortion rights through Congress, which doesn't seem likely anytime soon, uh, anything done by executive order will not carry the same weight as, as a Supreme Court ruling that uh, did land with a lot of weight last week.
0: Well, Mary, uh, abortion rights activists have been calling on the president to do more for abortion rights with his executive powers. What, what kind of measures have they been asking for?
6: Well, I think what's interesting is you're seeing a lot of advocates worry that there wasn't more planning for this moment because there were, many people saw this coming. As soon as Amy Coney Barrett was put on the court, I think a lot of activists realized like, okay, Roe is going to fall. And so that gives you a little bit of runway to do some planning here, but it doesn't seem like a whole lot was done ahead of time. Like I'm going to refer to my colleague, Ellie Mastal over at The Nation, who is Incredibly progressive, and he looks at you know what the Biden administration has been doing here, and he said, "Listen, seeing this coming, Biden could have done something like refuse to sign a twenty twenty two budget that included." the Hyde amendment which restricts funding for abortion federally so he could have really been aggressive in that way you know right now biden could be leasing federal lands to abortion providers providing services at military installations so doing very aggressive things and that's not exactly what we're seeing here and in truth we know that president biden he struggled to even say the word abortion and so i think for a lot of people who are active in this space They're concerned that if you can't say the word abortion, if you can't think about these more aggressive tactics, you're going to be a step behind because the conservative movement is not afraid to be aggressive and they have the Supreme Court. The other thing that I think a lot of activists are thinking about is court reform. I mean, the reason this decision happened is because the court is packed with conservative justices and Biden convened a commission to look into court reform it was controversial because a bunch of people on the commission came out the other side and basically said, we didn't issue strong enough recommendations. We didn't you know, come out the other side and really say what we needed to say because the president doesn't really wanna do that. He's, he's been pretty against those aggressive actions from the beginning. And so I think that's another thing that it's it's out of the abortion realm, but it's also so important to just frame this issue.
0: Well, and Josh, the, the president is, is signing this executive order, but just remind us of the limits of executive orders.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I think, um, by the way, for, uh, regarding what Mary said, uh, former Congressman Bakari Sellers, I think he had a good point. He said that you know he wants Biden to throw the first punch, and uh, but as instead they're they're being knocked back on their heels. They're being reactive to this. Um, an executive order um, in in some contexts can have a lot of uh, significant policy implications, but in this case, I think given the Supreme Court ruling, it's going to be hard for them to do. One thing that is worth noting. Is that biden did um, in his executive order um, established an interagency task force between hhs the white house gender policy council which includes attorney general merrick garland and this will provide technical assistance to states affording legal protection to out-of-state patients as well as providers who offer legal produ- reproductive health care. So they're trying to get the Justice Department engaged to see what they can do on a legal basis, I think. But, you know, it's true that, you know, they could have done a lot of this months ago or, or you know, even a year ago or more when, when, when it became clear that this might happen.
0: Lentolu, Tolu, how is this playing out within the party itself? How are Democrats talking about action or, or lack thereof around the abortion issue?
4: Yeah, Mary laid it out well. There is this tension within the party between party officials and activists who want the Biden administration and want their elected leaders to go further, to take more extreme measures, to take measures that are more aggressive, to throw the first punch, to be not on their heels. And then there are more institutionalists and and moderates in the party who are looking for ways to try to preserve some of these rights without doing anything that would be seen as, you know, pushing the envelope or going beyond the bounds of the law. So there is this internal tension and the party has not, uh, you know, been able to galvanize yet the kind of uh, grassroots supports that would help them to, um, you know, gain the kind of support they need in the uh, midterm elections. Now, that is the goal of the party to get everyone together and say, you know, Republicans are taking your rights away. Vote in November and you can restore some of these rights. You can give Democrats more power because they are on your side. But we have not seen that message being put forward in a very uh, aggressive way yet. And it has not been clear that uh, the enthusiasm that they're going to need in order to overcome history in these midterm elections is yet on their side. So that's something that uh, Democrats are hoping to do. But uh, in the wake of this ruling, there's been a little bit of disarray and sort of trying to get everyone together and get both the activist wing and the more progressive wing of the party uh, in line with the more moderate wing and with the Biden administration so that everyone is rowing in the same direction.
0: Well, you're sharing your thoughts. Donna comments, I'm a 70-year-old nurse. The president needs to declare a health emergency now and Mifepristone and Misoprostol over-the-counter and free. Well, let's turn now to Arizona, where our colleagues at Wisconsin Public Radio are reporting that the Wisconsin Supreme Court has ruled absentee ballot drop boxes are now illegal in the state. The court's conservative majority also ruled that it will be illegal for someone else, like a spouse or roommate, to return a voter's completed absentee ballot to the clerk's office, meaning the voter must carry out that task personally. Meanwhile, the U.S. Department of Justice sued Arizona this week over a new election law that requires voters to provide proof of citizenship. Uh, Talu, what case is the DOJ making against this law?
4: Well, the, the the DOJ is first saying that this law is unnecessary. That it is a scapegoating of uh, you know people from, from different backgrounds. Uh, that you know trying to make people jump through yet another, another hurdle just to be able to vote is unnecessary. There's no widespread examples or evidence that people who are non-citizens are going out to vote. This is a uh, you know an, a solution in, in search of a problem, and it is a form of voter suppression that is putting an undue burden on people in terms of their right to vote and sort of you know making them prove yet another thing about themselves before they can vote prove that they're a u.s citizen even though they've already you know registered and they've already done all of the various things that they need to vote so this is a a sign that uh you know this ongoing war about election integri- integrity, this ongoing battle about, you know, who gets to vote, who should be voting, what kinds of laws are being put in place to, to dissuade certain people from voting. Uh, it's, on, it's It continues despite the fact that, you know, we had an election two years ago uh, and there's still a debate over sort of what happened during that election and, you know, people pushing falsehoods and the big lie that the election was not free and fair and all of these laws that have been put in place to try to crack down on so-called election fraud, which we know there's not very much of it or not nothing substantial, but these laws do place a large burden on people to just be able to cast their ballot, and the DOJ is saying that they're fighting for people's right to vote and making sure that these various states are not putting an undue burden on people and making it harder for people to cast legitimate ballots by requiring all of these extra steps and hurdles for people, including proving that they are citizens. especially since there's no widespread evidence of non-citizens trying to vote in elections.
0: I mean, Mary, as we draw closer to the midterms, what's top of mind for you when you think about this question of of access to the ballot box?
6: Well, you know what I think is really interesting to think about when I think about Arizona, which is, my colleague, raised a really good point, which is there's no evidence for this kind of fraud going on. And we saw this in the January 6th committee when the Speaker of the House for Arizona testified, a Republican, Rusty Bowers, he said, you know, listen, during the 2020 election, Rudy Giuliani came to me and said, people who are not citizens were voting, dead people were voting. And I asked him for proof and he couldn't provide it. He said, we have more theories than proof. Okay. So that's a Republican basically saying what we're saying here, which is there was not proof that there's a problem here that this law is supposed to be addressing. However, Rusty Bowers, Speaker of the Arizona House, voted for this law, which is now creating this hurdle to voting because of this idea that is not there's no evidence for. I think that's so important to keep in mind that like these things are happening almost in a zombie-like way. Um, these kind of laws are moving forward. and they've just put more hurdles in front of people going to the ballot box. And in Arizona, it's especially important because this law runs counter to a Supreme Court ruling from 2013 which ruled on Arizona and said Arizona could require proof of citizenship in state elections but not in federal elections. So this is the state of Arizona literally taking a shot at this again and basically saying, let's talk about it, let's open this up. And it just means that we are not settled here on how these decisions are made, who can vote. So I think that's just like background for the entire 2020 midterms at this point, or 2020, 2020,
0: 2022. <laughs> we're, we're, we're with you. Uh, let, let's stay with Arizona for the moment. The Republican primary debate for the state's gubernatorial race was held last week. And, and here's a brief clip from that debate.
2: I'm asking you a question. Do Republican voters want to go over 2020 again? No. I think
4: most people want to move forward. Very, I think most, I people, think want think to most people want to
3: election integrity and election honesty and
7: they what
1: want does to make it mean? sure what does it mean I, like i <laughs> said Nothing we're not having done. election integrity well, in the middle of this az gop
7: it, primary as it goes so forward with what what integrity
6: the
3: that we I have i feel like, like i'm on an snl skit here are <laughs> we <laughs> going <laughs> to take control of the debate
6: we are now, or taking or to no
4: no no carrie i don't want i'm to happy try to do it i know you would be happy to do it listen i haven't been on a stage with this many women since i've been to a baby shower <laughs> I don't know how that's going to go over, Scott, but we'll let that hang.
0: Those were Arizona's GOP candidates for Governor Carrie Lake, Scott Neely, Karen Taylor Robeson, and Paola Oni zen Josh, tell us about Arizona's gubernatorial race and why this is one we should be
2: watching. Well, I think it's just, um, you know, one of several races around the country where, you know, they've been become kind of a joke on Twitter where um, it's kind of like a send in the clowns. I mean, the GOP candidate debate uh, felt like a spoof to a lot of people. Um, And I think that, you know, but it raises a lot of serious issues. I mean, these are candidates that were spreading election and COVID-19 misinformation laws during the debate in Arizona. Um, Trump-backed candidate Kerry Lake is the one who said, "I feel like this is a spoof." Um, that should sort of tell you something about it, um, you know. And the moderator just got steamrolled by a lot of people here, Ted Simons. Um, and I think that that's, you know, it's a problem because it basically shows that people aren't really interested in talking about the issues in a lot of these states. They want to hit the sort of the red meat for the for the Republican or the pro-Trump base and just really go into things like you know, how the election's being stolen from us, um, uh, you know, um, the great replacement theory in which immigrants are taking our jobs and our livelihoods and so forth, uh, and the COVID misinformation too. So, you know, it seems like it's going to be uh, spiraling downward instead of upward in terms of uh, elections where people are talking about the issues. And there's a lot of really serious issues out there that we should be talking about instead of COVID misinformation and, and fake election fraud.
0: Let's turn now to Texas, where the head of the Uvalde School District's police department, Peter Arandondo, resigned from his position on Uvalde City Council last Friday. Here's Berlinda Ariola speaking at a recent city council meeting. Ariola is the grandmother of Amarillo Garza, one of the 19 school children killed in that attack.
1: The anger gets worse and worse every day. The mere fact that Mr. Well, Pete was... Even at standing next to officers the day after all this happened, when they did the the debriefing, that was already a slap in the face. He had no right to even be there, as we felt. He had no right to be there.
0: Now this comes after a new report investigating the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde found multiple failures by law enforcement to stop the shooter. Mary, why has Arundondo been a focus for parents, community members and lawmakers in the aftermath of the shooting?
6: Well, you're right. It's really Everyone has come together to focus on this one person. And, and the reason why is that he was the officer in charge of the police response. And there is just so much evidence that the police response was not good here. I mean, we have the Texas Department of Public Safety Director Steve McGraw, who talked to a Senate committee and basically said that you know police officers should have been going in and Erdondo made the wrong decision here. So really everyone has come out and just said this was a bad call. And it was a bad call because he didn't try the door to try to get into the classroom. He thought it was locked and no one seems to have actually just tried to open it.
0: We're rounding up the top stories of the week. The former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 21 years in prison for violating George Floyd's civil rights. Floyd was killed by Chauvin in 2020 after the officer kneeled on his neck for more than nine minutes. Chauvin pleaded guilty and will also be required to pay restitution. The former officer is already serving over 22 years for the murder of Floyd. The state and federal sentences will be served concurrently. More from you and our guests in a moment. It's the News Roundup. Let's turn to the latest on the House investigation into the January 6th attack. Former White House counsel to President Donald Trump, Pat Cipollone, struck a deal with the January 6th Investigation Committee. He'll be interviewed today. The committee has been pursuing an interview with Cipollone, who fought against Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election for weeks. Tolu, what is this interview? Why is it a major breakthrough for the committee?
4: Well, Pat Silke-Baloney has a w- awareness of what was happening in the Oval Office, in the in the atmosphere that. President Trump uh, inhabited in the days and hours leading up to the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. And he has been someone who has been elusive. He's been someone who has not wanted to cooperate as much as the committee has wanted. He's not wanted to testify publicly. And when we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, one of the key aides who was also in Trump's orbit uh, in the days and hours leading up to January 6th, she had some pretty explosive testimony about what Cipollone was doing and saying uh, as he was advising Trump, as his top legal advisor within the White House. She said essentially that Cipollone tried to prevent Trump from uh, urging people to go to the Capitol, from trying to go to the Capitol himself, saying in essence that uh, we were going to be charged with every crime imaginable if we allow this movement to happen, this movement that Trump wanted to do, walking over from the White House to the Capitol at the time that he, in the words of Cassidy Hutchinson, this top White House aide, knew that people were armed and were going to the Capitol, and knew in advance of the attack that people uh, could be going with the intent to do harm and to do violence. And so Pat Cipollone may be able to unlock some of the uh, areas that the January 6th committee has been wanting to find out in terms of what was in the president's head, what he knew and when he knew it, and how culpable President Trump might be in the attack on the Capitol and how much uh, information he might have known before people took action and what he was doing in the hours after uh, the attack took place. There's uh, news and reports that Cipollone and other White House officials were trying to get Trump to call off the attackers, to call off the rioters, to tell them that he did not support what they were doing. And for hours after this attack happened, Trump was silent. He did not say anything. So trying to find out what happened before, during, and after the attack will be key uh, for these investigators as they speak to uh, Pat Cipollone and seeing how much he's willing to say uh, to the public uh, so that they can present uh, information to the public about what happened in the most uh, comprehensive way possible.
0: Josh, why has Cipollone been reluctant to talk to the J6 committee?
2: Well, I think, uh, Jen, one of the main reasons is as, uh, you know, so as the White House counsel, his views are of paramount importance. um, He's not the president's personal lawyer that at at most times has been Rudy Giuliani, but he gives the president legal advice. Um, Famously, John Dean was President Richard Nixon's White House counsel uh, before he turned on the president amid the efforts to cover up the Watergate break-in. Um, And John Dean has been the one perhaps most vocally calling for Cipollone to testify and become, I guess, like a John Dean-type figure in this. Um, And so what he's concerned about is the attorney-client privilege. Now, um, that means that he can't talk um, to the committee or anybody else, presumably, about conversations that he had, private conversations with the president. But um, there's an exception to that. If they believe that the crimes were being committed, he can break that attorney client privilege and talk about them. Uh, but he can also talk about an a, enormous arrange, a range of other activities that happened outside his conversations with the president. You know, what his conversations were uh, with the president's personal lawyers, what they were uh, with. with um, Cassidy Hutchinson and other aides. And one of the things they're really trying to figure out is whether or not uh, Mark... What role Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, played in this. And and, um, Cipollone would have a lot of information about that. You know, what Mark Meadows was doing uh, before, during, and after the attack on the Capitol. Uh, Was he in conversations with Roger Stone and Mike Flynn, two people that might have been a a tie-in with the Oath Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys? Um, So it basically puts him at the center of a lot of these big uh, threads of the investigation. So he showed up this morning at about uh, 9 o'clock or 8.30, I think, uh, dressed in a nice suit and tie. And I believe he's still being questioned right now and that we'll see some of it next week during one of one of the two hearings.
0: Mary, as we said, Cipollone has been reluctant to talk to the J6 committee. Do we know what shifted?
6: You know, it's hard to know what shifted. But what's interesting to me watching these hearings is you realize how much work it's taking to get people to testify. We're not talking about like one and done testimony. Cassidy Hutchinson testified multiple times and then she switched lawyers from a lawyer who was sort of a a Trump person to someone more independent. And then she appeared for the live testimony. It's almost like a trust building exercise, I guess, with this committee. And so... We're seeing this with Cipollone, too. We also know, of course, Liz Cheney called him out directly at the end of one of these hearings and basically said, we know that you know, our evidence is showing that you made some good decisions on January 6th. We would like to talk to you about that. So I, I really think, though, that Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, it was just It was so directed at both Cipollone and Mark Meadows. It set them up as like the yin to each other's yang. You had Mark Meadows, who seemed almost paralyzed in her telling, like unable to act on January 6th and saying, well, the president doesn't want to do anything. And meanwhile, you have Cipollone rushing in and saying, we must do something. We must do something. We can be held liable for this. And so it just makes him a really important character to testify. And it's, it's notable too that he has actually spoken to the committee before as well. It's just not in as much depth. So like Hutchinson, it's sort of this ongoing process and we'll see what happens today.
0: We got this comment from Henry who says, seriously, how is it not a crime to not tell everything you know about people committing crimes? I would sing. I'm not going to prison for no one. What do we know about the deals Cipollone struck with the committee? Are there any limitations to it, Tolu?
4: Uh, we have some limited information. Uh, our understanding is that, uh, you know, he is going to invoke some levels of privilege. There are some things he's not going to talk about in terms of his conversations with the president. Those are potentially covered by executive privilege. Uh, and, you know, there's some Areas that he is not likely to, um, you know, go into. He's a very guarded person. He's not someone who's who's sought the spotlight. He has remained loyal to Trump. He stayed with Trump. He was not one of the people who resigned his position in in the immediate aftermath of January sixth, or even after the election, as some others did, as Trump was spewing the big lie. Uh, So there are some limitations on how willing he's going to be to dish on what happened behind closed doors with between him and the president, Uh, and and that is uh, something that's going to limit how much the the, uh, committee is able to get. Um, it, it also appears that he's not um, likely to uh, have his uh, testimony, happen live, at least not at this point. He's doing it behind closed doors. It's likely to be at least audio recorded, if not video recorded. Uh, And, you know, there's some questions that he's just not going to be willing to answer, specifically areas that delve into the area of privilege. Uh, And, you know, that may be something that the committee has to fight out in court, or it may be something that the committee has already conceded that they're not going to ask about specific things that they know might be privileged or that he'd be unwilling to answer. Uh, But despite that, I I do do imagine that the committee will get information that they did not previously had have uh, because Cipollone was so integral to the White House's operating, to its legal principles, to its understanding of what was legal, what was lawful, what <laughs> President Trump knew might might have been illegal that he may have been involved in. Uh, and so that's why he's been such a high-profile target and while he's why he's such a major uh, get for this committee.
0: Now, Josh, the, the committee has taken a thematic approach to these hearings. We know the next hearing is happening on Tuesday during the daytime Thursday's hearing is returning to primetime. Do we know what to expect from these next two hearings?
2: Yeah, the first hearing, uh, Jen, is going to be about uh, it's one that I'm very interested in. I've been writing about this a lot, is you know whether or not there's a nexus between Trump and people in the White House, Mark Meadows, etc., and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Uh, So they have been kind of unspooling this as almost a movie where they set things up at the the first hearing, the first primetime hearing, and then they circle back to them, almost like paying something off in a movie. And they did say some things in the first hearing about how the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys were both maneuvering and going towards the Capitol before Trump even began speaking and before he told people to go to the Capitol. So there's some indication that they have information that um, that this was not just some random thing, that there was some pre-planning. And the big question is whether or not people in the White House um, were part of those conversations with, with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers to essentially crack open the Capitol building and allow the mob to go in. Um, and if there there's a way to tie Trump to that, especially or Mark Meadows. I mean, that is a hugely significant part of this. So that's one thing. And then the second hearing on Thursday is going to be about the 187 minutes in which Trump reportedly did nothing uh, to stop the rioting. I mean, those are the times from, from the first footage of people storming the Capitol to when Trump finally released a video about it. Um, And so in in both of those cases, uh, Cipollone um, has a monumental role in helping um, explicate what happened, even if he doesn't assert executive privilege, uh, or even if he does assert executive privilege and not talk about specifically what Trump's frame of mind was. Um, He's in a position to know an enormous amount about both of those. And one of the things that Cassidy Hutchinson said, which I think hasn't been really um, covered much, is... um when she was talking about Cipollone, she did say, of course, that he said, we are going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. Speaking about Trump going up to the Hill, uh, and the emphasis there is on the we, not just Trump. But he also she also testified that Cipollone was concerned that Trump could be charged with obstructing justice or the Electoral College count if he went to the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, And here's the operative uh, part. He said, um, she said, quote, he was also worried that it would look like we were inciting a riot or encouraging a riot to happen up on the Capitol. So. You know, this is some of the stuff that she said during her videotape depositions, not in front of the committee. But you know, those are some very serious issues. Uh, seditious conspiracy comes into play. So if they can tie Trump to those, I think that it it sort of brings the whole investigation to another level. It also puts enormous pressure on the Justice Department uh, to investigate potential criminal activity on the part of the president and the White House at the time.
0: Well, seven of Trump's allies, including Rudy Giuliani and South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, were subpoenaed on. Two- Tuesday in Georgia's criminal investigation into election interference. Tolu, what's the significance of this specific round of subpoenas?
4: Well, this is a case that's been ongoing for for quite a while and it shows that this case is escalating. This is a potential criminal case uh, uh, and and focusing on uh, Trump's efforts and the efforts of some of the people in his orbit to try to overturn the election in Georgia. He was caught on tape essentially saying that he wanted the Secretary of State to find votes for him to get him to overcome the deficit that he had against Joe Biden uh, and continuing to spew these allegations of fraud, which were baseless. And he had help in that effort. He had help from some of his own uh, lawyers as well well as from Rudy, uh, Rudy Giuliani, his, his lawyer, and uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who also called the Secretary of State in Georgia. And they have both been subpoenaed and they have both been asked to testify before the grand jury. And this is a criminal investigation. So this is something that could uh, potentially lead to charges. And the fact that it's escalating and that people who are so close to Trump are being called in to, to testify, and several of them are se- seemingly unwilling to testify or, or, or rejecting the, these uh, requests to testify, uh, it shows that the, the heat is really turning up on people who are close to Trump. And this investigation is accelerating and getting closer and closer to Trump's inner circle and potentially to Trump himself. And this is something that's happening as the former president is considering whether to run again for uh, the presidency. And he continues to be in legal hot water in Georgia due to the actions of, of him and, and the people around him after in the aftermath of the election in 2020. And the allegation is that he tried to overturn the will of voters. He tried to illegally uh, win the state after having lost it to Joe Biden uh, by trying to have votes cast, uh, you know, legally cast votes thrown out, uh, trying to put pressure on government officials to change the results of an election There's pretty serious charges. Uh, and uh, the fact that this investigation is continuing where other investigations have petered out shows that this is something that is going to be a, a, an important part of the calculus for, for the former president as he so- decides whether or, not, whether or not to run. And it could be uh, a legal jeopardy that he finds himself in, in the next few months.
0: Well, here's Georgia District Attorney Fawny Willis speaking to NBC News on Wednesday, saying she's not ruling out subpoenaing for Donald Trump as part of her investigation.
8: I think that people thought that we came into this as some kind of game. Um, This is not a game at all. What I am doing is very serious. Might we see a
0: subpoena of the former president himself? Uh, Anything is possible. Mary, what are you watching for as this investigation continues to unfold?
6: Well, it'll be interesting to see if she subpoenas uh, the former president, of course, but also how hard some of these people being subpoenaed push back. You know, we're seeing Lindsey Graham, who was subpoenaed, saying he's going to fight this, alleging that there's some kind of separation of powers issue here, which I'm not quite seeing. But, you know, obviously he doesn't want to testify. But it's weird because he's also saying this is all politics. And you'd think, you know, maybe he'd want to clear that up here if this is a big nothing. Right. And so it's it'll just be interesting to me to see as we circle closer to the heart of things here, who's pushing back, who actually comes to the table and talks, and then also what kind of charges they're talking about here, because you know this grand jury has, I think, a year to give a report um, to the district attorney and, and their recommendations, and she's talked about potentially RICO charges, state RICO charges, racketeering charges, so... It'll just be interesting to me to see what the charges end up being but then also who ends up testifying and how hard they fight against it.
0: Josh, what about you?
2: Well, I mean, I think, you know, she when she says she's not fooling around here, I mean, she that that's definitely the case. I mean, she was interviewing hundreds of uh, potential witnesses by even by last February and bringing people in before a grand jury. Those are all indications that you are seriously considering Criminal charges, and the FBI is supporting that investigation, of course. Um, and I think that you know it 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 shows that Trump has some serious liability here, and certainly people working for him, the people that were crafting these um, you know illegal election uh, you know uh, plots that Trump had, you know the selection of, of, of an alternative slate of candidates. Of finding votes that aren't there, things like that. I also think that it raises a lot of questions about the Justice Department investigation. I think people are wondering, you know, where's the Justice Department? Why haven't they been issuing more subpoenas? Why haven't they been seizing phone records and things like that? Um, They did seize the phones of two people that were key to this, but that was the inspector general's office. So you have to keep in mind that that's for an internal investigation. That's Josh Meyer, the domestic
0: security correspondent
2: for USA Today, Tolu
0: Oloranipa. He's a Washington Post politics reporter and Mary Harris, the host of Slate's Daily News Podcast. Thanks to you all. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A on Demand, and Chris Costano is our digital editor. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. We'll be back with the global edition of the News Roundup in just a moment. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. It's the News Roundup. Every week, we set aside this hour to focus on what's been going on overseas. And today, we start with the news that broke overnight from Japan.
7: <laughs> That's
0: the current Prime Minister of Japan, Fumio Kashida and you can hear him speaking through tears about the shooting of the country's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Abe later died at the hospital. Mr. Kashidat called it a, quote, barbaric act. He added that the attack happened during an election campaign, which, quote, is the basis of democracy, and it is absolutely inexcusable. Let's welcome Sheila Smith back to the Roundup. Sheila Smith is the John E. Merrill Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Sheila, thanks for joining us.
8: Thank you, Jen.
0: It's wonderful to be with you. Also here, Jack Detch, Foreign Policy's Pentagon and national security reporter. Jack, welcome back. Thank you, Jen. So the former prime minister was shot at a campaign rally on Friday morning. Jack, walk us through what happened.
9: Yeah, so... um It appears that Abe was uh, giving a campaign speech when he was shot in the back with a homemade gun. Of course, uh, Japan, not a country known specifically for gun violence, um, immediately collapsed, was flown out to the hospital where he was later pronounced dead. Uh, It's it's not an understatement to say, I mean, these will be huge reverberations, uh, both in the Japanese campaign, uh, there's already a campaign for the diet. Uh, going on where Fumio Kishida will face somewhat of a referendum on his leadership, uh, but also reverberations for U.S. policy and, and strategy. Uh, Abe really helped lead Japan out of the legacy of World War II uh, towards a more offensive footing, uh, towards a, a more confrontational tack towards China, and even really put the words in the mouth of the Trump and Biden administrations in talking about this free and open uh, Indo-Pacific concept. So somebody who was hugely influential on the foreign policy scene and, and leaves a huge gap in Japanese politics.
0: What have officials shared so far about the suspect in the shooting?
9: So it seems like the suspect is already in, in custody. Um, he was upset about uh, the, the Abenomics policies, Uh, under Abe, uh, of course, which tried to push Japan out of its long economic lull in the 1990s, focused on loose monetary policy and fiscal stimulus, uh, but upset about that, uh, has already confessed to the crime, uh, so it seems like it's, it's pretty buttoned up on, on the law enforcement side already, uh, but certainly reverberations to come when, when you just look at this, uh, this diet campaign, uh, and now, uh, of course, Kashida without a, a major ally on the campaign trail uh, as Japanese voters go to the polls.
0: Sheila, Abe was Japan's longest-serving leader. Tell us more about his time in office and and how popular he was.
8: Sure, he um he was the grandson of a very famous post-war politician, Prime Minister Kishi Nobusuke, and the son of a former foreign minister. Uh, Abe Shintaro, he's well-known to the Japanese people, therefore, as being one of the uh, blue-blood leader in the Liberal Democratic Party. He spent two terms in office as prime minister. The first one was not—it ended quickly. That was in 2006 to 2007. Uh, He had uh, health issues, and uh, basically his cabinet dissembled because he had to to go to the hospital. So that was a sort of ignominious end to what everybody expected to be a really striking tenure as prime minister. But then he came back, and he came back in 2012. Uh, when an opposition party was in power in Tokyo, and the Japanese people were quite rattled also by the confrontation with China over the Senkaku Islands, the disputed islands in the East China Sea. So Abe was voted into office at the end of 2012 and, it, and, and left in 2020, you know, spending eight years then as a very well-known global statesman, but also you know giving the Japanese people once more some hope in their future. And largely that was his economic package of Abenomics, uh, which his his shooter apparently seemed to take issue with. But it was also, as Jack pointed out, really putting the Japanese on the world stage in terms of thinking about their security and their foreign policy strategy. So he's very well-liked. he has a little bit of a reputation for being an ideologue on the, on the right, for being a conservative nationalist. But in office, he was really quite the pragmatic leader addressing historical reconciliation with China as well as with South Korea. And even uh, with President Obama, he invited President Obama to Hiroshima and then returned that visit with a visit himself to Pearl Harbor.
0: What impact did Abe leave on the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party?
8: so that's a, that that's i think where we're going to have to wait for a little bit of time to see what the consequence of this assassination is he's a very powerful he was came out of office and then assumed the the leadership of the largest faction uh, in the LDP, the, for those of you who are not, your listeners who are not Japan politics uh, experts, the Liberal Democratic Party is the Tory party or the Conservative Party, if you will, in Japan. And is, it is divided into fairly significant personal factions. Uh, and Abe now lead, led, excuse me, I'm still not used to the past tense, uh, led the, the largest faction of the LDP, which virtually meant that he would have, he and his faction would have a deciding role. In the future
0: leadership of Japan, Jack, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called the assassination "quote profoundly disturbing." What are we hearing from the rest of the world as they react to this news?
9: Yeah, I, I think just shock and and alarm. Uh, of course, Biden also saying he was saddened uh, by the incident. Uh, but when you when you look at, at just the reverberations this this had, uh, I mean Abe's leadership, uh, the person who really outlined the relationship between uh, the Indian Ocean. And the Pacific Ocean. Uh, somebody who really helped bring uh, India into the fold uh, in foreign policy. So uh, you know, seemingly a, a godfather of, of the Quad concept. Uh, somebody who even helped uh, you know with that Indo-Pacific concept. Uh, change the name, change the moniker of American strategy. Uh, Abe, Abe and, and officials, and Japanese officials, uh, came to Washington and touted this this free and open Indo-Pacific concept. Around Washington, so so you really look at at the geography of the region as it's changed, uh, and it's it's Shinzo Abe's geography that that he's outlined uh, to American officials and others. So uh, a lot of sadness certainly, uh, and just you know a, a wonder and, and sort of surprise, but also concern about uh, you know who's going to take the mantle up now as as Japan has looked to kind of move out of that World War II crouch into perhaps a a more offensive role in the region.
0: Well, and Sheila, that makes me wonder how much political power Abe continued to wield in Japan, even after stepping down from office.
8: I think it was it was significant, and again, as I noted earlier, it was significant within his own party. Um, he really was going to be, in some ways, the kingmaker going forward for the, the future conservative movement in Japan. But he also is, you know, he had the intellect, and he had the ability to articulate that conception of the Indo-Pacific vision, as Jack pointed out, across you know across the globe. He was a very comfortable uh, statesman in that respect and really played a considerable role, not only in, for example, with us in, in navigating the kind of tumultuous era of Donald Trump, but also in, in supporting the values and the norms of the post-war era. So negotiating trade agreements with the Europeans, reaching out, as, as Jack said, to India, but also to Xi Jinping. Um, he took his his free and open Indo-Pacific concept to to Beijing to tell Xi that China and Japan didn't have to be at odds with each other. They could find common cause in a stable and prosperous region. Um, But I think it's going to be hard on the global stage to replace Prime Minister Abe because his voice was so large and so confident about Japan's interests and about the norms and values that underpinned not only Japan's future, uh, but the future of the United States and other major powers in in the Indo-Pacific and indeed around the globe.
0: Well, and Sheila... Beyond the politics, what impact do you think this is going to have on Japanese life and culture?
8: I think this is the piece. I think it's most um, is most shaken. I've had nothing but text messages and emails all through the night from friends and colleagues, professional colleagues, and the Japanese people are deeply shaken by this. Um, You know, gun violence is just not a part of Japanese life. I think last year, twenty twenty one, you had ten shootings, only one of which was a fatality, and most of those were associated with uh, gang fights between organized crime groups. So this is, this is a kind of stump speech that every politician gives uh, outside a train station. People are pretty proximate to their politicians. They don't, they don't get Secret Service-type people in, in front of them very often. So I think the, the Japanese people felt like their society was safe, their politicians were safe, uh, and their democracy was safe. And I think you're going to see now that run up to this election on Sunday, a lot of people will be shaken by this and wonder about whether or not there are other similar kinds of incidents could happen. But it's a reminiscent of a Japan that's pre-war, pre-1945. Um, it's not reminiscent of the post-war period to have people take aim, quite literally, at at their politicians. So I think this is going to have a ripple effect that I think it's hard to predict right now, but it's certainly deeply affecting the Japanese people.
0: Well, and we should just mention that media reports say this gun appears to be homemade. Sheila, thank you so much for your time today. That's Sheila Smith, the John E. Merrill Senior Fellow for Asia Pacific Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. And joining us now, Joyce Karam. She's Senior Correspondent for the National. Joyce, welcome back.
7: Hi, John. Good to be with you.
0: Also with us, Robert Moore, Correspondent for ITV News. Robert, always great to have you.
3: Great to join the conversation. Thanks for having
0: me. Well, overseas, there has been a lot to follow this week. Well, there has rarely
5: been a more bizarre day in British politics. A mass exodus from government ranks, ministers and aides quitting almost by the minute. We have reason to question the truth and
3: integrity of what we've all been told. And at some point, we have to conclude that enough is enough. I believe
7: that point is now.
0: Boris Johnson tried to hang on, but the UK's search for a new prime minister is now underway. A far less democratic process is playing out in Nicaragua. We'll find out how politics there took a turn for the worse. Plus, the latest from Ukraine and why the FBI is waving more red flags about what China is up to. But first,
5: let's turn to London. My friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. And our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader... I know that there will be many people who are relieved, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed, and I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks.
0: Robert, what led to this week's political drama?
3: <laughs> well, in, in try and understand the psychodrama. Of British politics, Jen, you have to go back really to uh, the character of Boris Johnson. You know, there was some not just high drama, high octane in uh, in Westminster this week, but, uh, you know, there was something of a Shakespearean dimension, dimension to it because, you know, Boris Johnson is brilliant, but he's also a deeply uh, flawed leader. And he was toppled from within by his own MPs in Britain under our sort of unwritten constitution. If the prime minister cannot command the support of his own party, then he must step aside. And indeed, I mean, he's been so besieged by scandals, primarily the scandal about him breaking uh, and being fined for a series of breaches of of COVID-19 rules within his own office and house at Number 10 Downing Street. But also, there has been so many times that Downing Street has simply uh, misled uh, their own MPs uh, and indeed the press and therefore the British public, that that I think his own MPs were just tired with the disingenuous uh, and, uh, you know, essentially... Uh, immoral conduct of of Boris Johnson you know he's a charismatic charming extremely funny leader but he's also has these kind of very deep seated uh, uh, personality flaws he's just dis- he's you know he's certainly economical with the truth as they often say in britain but he's also disorganized uh, and there was just a sense from within the conservative party that they were tired of his leadership and, and just he'd lost the trust of of his own MPs and beyond that of the British people. Well,
0: let's hear a bit more from outgoing Prime Minister Johnson. He's being asked here by the BBC about remarks he'd previously made about what he knew about controversial lawmaker Chris
3: Pincher. Did you want to joke, though, Pincher by name, Pincher by nature?
5: Well, what I can tell you is that if I look at the background of this and why I regret it so much, is that uh, about three years ago, uh, there was a complaint made against uh, Chris Pincher in the Foreign Office. Uh, it was raised with me. And, you know, if if I had my time again, I would think back on it and uh, recognize that he wasn't going to learn any lesson and he wasn't going to, to change.
0: Robert, first, who is Chris Pincher?
5: A Chris Pitcher is a Conservative
3: MP, but he was also what they call the Deputy Chief Whip. So he was the, part, the very person within the Conservative Party who was in charge of sort of party discipline. And it was alleged that he had drunk way too much at, at a party, at a Conservative Party function and had sexually harassed two other uh, men at that party. But as so often in British politics, and indeed, you know, on this side of the Atlantic as well, it wasn't so much the crime but the cover-up. It was the sense that Downing Street has had misled people and the country about the nature of what Boris Johnson knew. And that's why it goes back, you know, way beyond the the... the Chris Pincher story way beyond even Partygate and really to the kind of essential core personality flaws in Boris Johnson you know he's always had this I you know I've known him since we were at Oxford University together um and I think that the 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 greatest truth ever said about him was by a former uh cabinet minister who said look uh He's the life and soul of a party, but you don't want him driving you home at the end of the evening. This sense that he was kind of always dangerous, always cut corners, always uh, took liberties with the truth. And I think, you know, Britain is in such a sort of sensitive place economically, politically, in this post Brexit world that suddenly this sort of kind of lack of morality caught up on Boris Johnson and really Tory MPs r- ran out of patience uh, and this Chris Pincher story is just the latest in a in a whole line of sort of of allegations uh, and sort of being buffeted by scandal mm-hmm. that has besieged his premiership since the very beginning you know we, the legacy of Boris Johnson is going to be this brilliant but deeply flawed prime minister
0: well joe uh, robert says suddenly and and we should point out here that Johnson survived a no confidence vote just just a few weeks ago so it, it seemed he was he was staying in place but then things started to move really quickly what's your sense of what shifted
7: no for sure I mean in, uh this seems like a very long goodbye by uh Boris uh, Johnson as you said he faced a vote of uh, no confidence uh there's been a series of scandals and the pincher uh scandal is just the the straw sort of that broke the uh camels uh the camel's back he's seen as reckless he's seen as inconsistent uh, not just inside uh the uk but uh people on the outside you can you can bet jen that not many people are mourning uh, his exit uh in europe uh at the moment i mean he is uh seen as the guy who got uh the brexit uh done and he uh, is celebrated for his position uh on ukraine uh but then he is very inconsistent with his international commitments uh he is uh, seen as somebody who cut uh, the social uh, welfare uh, in, uh, in Britain and uh, is still not recovered from uh, the COVID uh, legacy uh, and the high number of COVID uh, deaths under his uh, three-year uh, three term. So this was long, long in the coming. And uh, uh, at this point, uh, all the eyes are who will uh, replace uh, Boris uh, Johnson, it will most likely be, it will be actually a conservative uh, prime minister, but the jockeying has already started within uh, his own party.
0: Jack, there's always talk about the U.K. and the U.S. having a special relationship. How has the White House responded?
9: Well, I, I don't think the special relationship is bound to change here. There there may actually be more stability in, in Britain uh, with Ben Wallace, who's the defense secretary in the U.K., already a very well-known entity, uh, seeming to emerge as, as a clear favorite, at least in, in the early uh, betting markets so far. Um, but, you know, I mean, the the UK has really sort of helped uh, the US when you look at, at the Ukraine situation in particular, kind of being uh, the ballast in, in Western Europe sort of marshalling uh, both the French and the Germans, who have been sort of more reticent to get more involved. Uh, The UK has always been pushing for for more weapons uh, to help out the Ukrainians uh, more forcefully. So uh, no no expectation the special relationship will change. It's just the question of whether Boris Johnson's economic legacy, uh, now in the throes of really a cost-of-living crisis in the UK, uh, inflation really burying uh, the country, uh, whether the successor is going to run into economic challenges which then begin to derail that foreign policy agenda.
0: And Robert, we know Johnson had a very good relationship with President Zelensky of Ukraine. Any reason to expect the UK might change course?
3: over its support of Ukraine? No, no, that, that is, I think, almost a sort of cross-party, certainly cross-conservative-party consensus. So, you know, whoever becomes uh, the next prime minister and leader of the conservative party, whether it's, you know, Rishi Sunak, the former chancellor, or, or Ben Wallace, the, the, the current defense secretary, or Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, uh, you know, if any of those uh, characters emerge to be the new prime minister, you know, you can be certain that, that Britain's position on Ukraine uh, stays uh, the same, so I don't think there's a kind of a, a Ukraine angle, if you like, to the to the battle for the succession. But you're right; that that is now underway, and it's going to get ugly because. Even if there's consensus on Ukraine, there are deep schisms and divisions within the Conservative Party about tax cuts, about how to handle, uh, you know, the Scottish drive uh, for independence, how to deal with it in a post-Brexit world with Northern Ireland. So there are many issues which are going to be deeply divisive within the party. Ukraine is not one of them.
0: So ultimately, Robert, how do you think history will treat Johnson's time in office?
3: oh i my own view is, and you know this is somebody who has known him since we were students is it's going to be harsh because he had you know, remarkable political opportunity. He stitched together in Britain an almost unique coalition of of sort of being, uh, of motivating his core conservative supporters, but beyond that, reaching deep into sort of Britain's northern working class. It it gave him a, a coalition and an opportunity to govern like few of his predecessors. And yet he threw all of this away because of these character flaws I've referred to, and I think, you know, that sense that there was a golden opportunity for him to change the kind of the nature of the, of, the sort of, of, the, of government in Britain, or how we govern each other, this attempt to sort of level up Britain, as we call it, this attempt to try and make it a more equal society, but also to make it a free enterprise society, all of that was in front of him. And he failed and failed disastrously because of these character flaws. You know, time and time again he promised his lawmakers he would reinvent himself, he would learn the lessons. But even in that resignation speech, there was no remorse, there was not much humility, there was little dignity. He blamed others, he said that he was the victim of a of a herd mentality. So even in those in these dying days of his time in number ten, You know, I see the Boris Johnson premiership in Shakespearean terms as basically, uh, you know, a a tragedy playing out with a deeply flawed character at the heart of it.
0: That's Robert Moore. He's an award-winning correspondent for ITV News. Robert, thanks for your time. It's a pleasure. Let's turn now to the war in Ukraine. Monday, Russian President Vladimir Putin declared victory over the eastern region of Luhansk. But Moscow might be temporarily easing its military offensive. Wednesday was the first time in 133 days of war that Russian forces made no claimed or assessed territorial gains. That's according to the Institute for the Study of War. Jack, what's going on? The the question has always been, Jen. I mean, does Russia have the troops? Um, they certainly were
9: able to consolidate uh, Luhansk, as as Putin said, and as Western officials have assessed, fairly quickly. Uh, but they certainly took a beating from doing it. And in in the interim, of course, we've seen the Ukrainians get more capabilities online, both uh, the M. Five five howitzers, uh, and also uh, the MLRS systems, those multiple rocket launch systems that can put uh, a real hurt on Russians' command and control. Uh, Russia already appears to be shuffling the decks when it comes to some of their military commanders. Um, they've put in place a, a couple new folks, um, and they just st- still seem to be figuring out how to recruit Uh, the number of troops that you need for this type of artillery fight uh, that's just gonna cost a lot of lives and doing it while under the guise of this special military quote-unquote operation basically telling the Russian public that this is not a war so how long can kind of Putin keep this game going on? It's, it's hard to say. And that's going to be a, a real question, not only as they go into Donetsk after this operational pause, but also in Kherson in the south, where the Ukrainians have been mounting a serious partisan resistance.
0: Well, ABC News this week spoke to an American veteran who went on his own to fight in Ukraine, and he was pretty candid about the battle being waged in eastern Ukraine.
7: The front line is basically just
8: the
6: Russians showing you constantly, indirect fire with Either mortar systems or regular artillery. They hunt you with drones 24-7. We had Russian snipers
9: sniping at us, attack drones, mortars. And we just got lucky that the Russians were too timid because they could have easily overwhelmed us and killed every single one of us.
0: Writing in the Washington Post, George Will argued this week that the U.S. and NATO should mobilize their naval forces to break Russia's blockade of the Black Sea. Joy, Joyce, could NATO take that action? What case could they make for doing it?
7: I mean, there are discussions underway, uh, especially after uh, Sweden and uh, Flynn, Finland acceded to uh, to NATO. There are discussions with Turkey, uh, given its uh, strategic uh, location on the Black Sea, if it can help uh, diplomatically uh, break uh, the Russian uh, the Russian naval uh, uh, blockade. Uh, but overall, I think, uh, Jen, uh, what we're seeing is uh, the Russians are preparing for a long uh, war here. This is an up. Operational pause, but it's not a uh, ceasefire. I mean that they, they've continued to uh, shell uh, more than ten cities uh, in Ukraine uh, just this just this week. Uh, so they're making incremental uh, progress. The ultimate goal, after they regroup and uh, replenish uh, their combat uh, supplies, is they want to take the whole uh, Donbas. Uh, but they are also, as uh, Jack mentioned, they are quickly realizing. That there is no rapid uh, victory here. This is more looking uh, by the day as a war uh, of attrition uh, to everyone that's watching it, uh, whether it's uh, uh, Russia, Ukraine, or uh, NATO uh, on uh, on the outside. I, I don't think personally that NATO would be uh, would rush into an involvement in uh, uh, in Ukraine, given everything that we've discussed in the past few months. That. Russia is a nuclear uh, power, and you don't want to pick a confrontation uh, with Russia. But we could see more being done to alleviate the naval uh, uh, blockade uh, that uh, Ukraine is is facing.
0: Well, this week, the Financial Times reported moves by Russia to give the state greater control over private companies and workers. The paper said the Russian government is looking for new ways to put its economy on a stronger war footing. Jack, wars are expensive. How much longer can Russia bankrupt? The military effort against Eastern Ukraine. Uh, for some time, it seems, because certainly they have still been able to get
9: uh, some oil and natural gas out despite the sanctions. Of course, the Europeans are weaning themselves off of the oil and natural gas, but um, the Russians are still able to sell, um, you know, through through other sources. Uh, perhaps the Chinese. Um, but this will, of course, be be expensive, uh, and the Russians also have to offer bonuses now to people they're coming up and, and signing up to recruit as they step up these recruiting drives uh, that don't seem to be going very far, because... Even uh, though the Russians have locked down their domestic media, uh, people can find out through, through Telegram, through other sources, uh, just what is kind of going on on the ground, how, how these Russian forces have been chewed up. And, and it's not like the folks that are coming in are going to get a ton of training, certainly, uh, before they go to the front lines in, in this attrition battle.
0: WNBA player Brittany Griner pleaded guilty in a Russian court to drug possession on Thursday. She's been detained since February after she was caught with vape cartridges with cannabis oil at Moscow Airport. That's according to Moscow officials. In May, the State Department declared she was, quote, wrongfully detained. The guilty plea comes after Griner wrote a letter to the White House asking for help. Greiner's wife, Sherelle, spoke to Gail King on CBS this week. She outlined why Brittany wrote directly to President Biden. It kills me
1: every time that, you know, when I have to write her and she's asking, you know, have you met with him yet? And, you know, I have to say no. And she's like, you know what? I'm sure she's like, I'm going to write him an ass now because, you know, my family has tried and, and to no avail. So I'm going to do it myself.
0: Joyce, how has the White House responded to Greiner's case so far?
7: Um, Min Jin, the White House is under increasing uh, pressure to do more. We saw uh, just recently this week that uh, the president and the vice president, Kamala Harris, called uh, uh, Brittany Greiner's uh, wife and uh, assured that they would do their best to ensure uh, her uh, release. The problem uh, that we have is uh, the Russians uh, are uh, bargaining uh, high uh, for, uh, for her. Release. So she had to, ble- to plead uh, g- uh, guilty, uh, hoping for a lesser uh, sentence, and maybe it would start uh, the talk of a prisoner uh, exchange. The New York Times reported uh, this week that the Russians are interested in the release of uh, Victor uh, Bout, who uh, he's known as the merchant of death. He's an arms dealer uh, serving 25 uh, years, a year sentence. In in, uh, in Illinois, uh, this would be a heavier uh, pill to swallow uh, for uh, for the White House to make such uh, swap. Uh, at the same time, um, uh, Brittany Griner is, you know, a basketball uh, star. She's a woman. She's black. She's gay. Uh, so uh, there is an increasing uh, pressure uh, on the administration uh, to do more. Uh, what we know is her next court date is on uh, July uh, 14, but the. Russians don't want to uh, even start uh, negotiations on a possible swap or anything else uh, until a verdict is uh, reached. So that could uh, take uh, years, as we know from other cases like Paul Whelan, who is still uh, held in Russia. He was uh, arrested in 2018.
0: We got this comment from Mark via email, who says, The coach's wife and others calling out Biden, however well-intentioned, are making the situation worse. This is an international hostage situation in the context of the Ukraine invasion. By going public with misplaced criticism, they are increasing Russian leverage in negotiations for a prisoner trade. That will make getting Greiner home more difficult for the U.S. And Jack, we should note, at the very beginning of this, when when Brittany Greiner was first detained, there was very little public focus put on her case, and that was strategic, but explain how this story has evolved since then.
9: Yeah, I mean, I I think the cries have just become much more urgent as as the war has stretched out in Ukraine, uh, and and you just look at the diplomatic situation between the United States and Russia. The, the calls are very few and far between. Uh, it took the Pentagon months to set up a call, even just between the defense chiefs, Lloyd Austin and Sergei Shoigu. Uh, and now you're you're in a situation where you just have to let the situation play out under Russia's legal system to set up this potentially com- complicated uh, and painful swap. Now. Could the families please be, uh, be something that, that reduces the Biden administration's leverage? I, I mean, I don't necessarily see it because this is something that we see in, in every prisoner case, uh, whether it's Andrew Brunson in, in Turkey, whether it's uh, Trevor Reed, who of course was recently released from Russian custody, uh, and, and Paul Reed, of course, who also remains in custody in Russia. So certainly something that, that Russian officials expect, uh, certainly something they'd like to see put the pressure on, on Washington uh, but it seems like we just have to let this, this play out uh, and, and the diplomacy will have to come
0: after we sort of see a verdict. And, and is there a sense, Jack, of, of what's happening in private versus what's happening in public around this case? Well, I, I mean, Russia has these very, very
9: strict drug laws, right? And of course, uh, Brittany Griner was, was wrapped up into that by, by mistakenly bringing in these cannabis cartridges into the country. Uh, in private, uh, of course, there's, there's interest in, in working this case. Um, Of course, they are low-level discussions. uh, And uh, the the families, of course, are in constant contact with with the State Department and the rest of of U.S. government, but still kind of in a little bit of a holding pattern as the Russians try to seek their pound of flesh uh, for, again, a very high-profile American prisoner here.
0: Joyce, is it clear how much time Griner could be sentenced to?
7: We uh, we don't know uh, we don't know yet. I mean, this could uh, in in the case of uh, Paul uh, Paul Whelan, I think it's over. uh, He's been sentenced over sixteen years. So, uh, but he had higher uh, charges of uh, uh, espionage. Uh, We are waiting for the next uh, court date in. Just next week, next Thursday, and then uh, uh, for the for the verdict uh, afterwards. I mean, she in her uh, when she pled, uh, she pleaded guilty. She uh, said there was no intention, so that uh, hopefully will uh, mean a uh, lesser uh, sentence.
0: Well, let's turn next to Central America. Nicaragua's President Daniel Ortega has continued his crackdown on his political opponents. This time, it's the Catholic Church. This week, Ortega exiled the nuns charity organization established by Mother Teresa. Joyce, what was behind this exile?
7: No, this is, uh, this is what's happening in Nicaragua is uh, uh, very concerning. I mean, we've seen uh, since 2018 over 190 attacks on uh, the Catholic uh, church in, in the country. Uh, w- what it looks like now is a heavier uh, crackdown, but this is very much also, uh, 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 you know, a, a counterattack or uh, revenge for uh, what the church did in 2018 by supporting the Uh, rallies and the peaceful demonstrations against uh, corruption uh, in the countries. In the country, it opened its doors, its hospitals for uh, those uh, wounded, and uh, it seems now it's payback uh, time by the Ortega uh, regime. Uh, uh, But at the same time, it's happening uh, in parallel with another uh, crackdown against the opposition, against uh, NGOs, especially uh, foreign uh, NGOs. In, in the country, we have now more than 150 uh, opposition leaders in, uh, in prison in uh, Nicaragua, and this is all coming, uh, you know, ahead of uh, the municipal elections in the country in uh, for, uh, four months. So this is very much in line with Ortega's uh, playbook in uh, clamping down and in, in making sure he uh, solidifies his grip. Um, on uh, on the country, even if it means going against, uh, you know, charity organization or um, uh, groups uh, like uh, the uh, Missionaries of Charity founded by uh, Mother Teresa.
0: Well, Jack, also this week, the Nicaraguan government began taking over city halls in opposition-held territory. What's the goal? Well, the, the goal
9: is to to solidify power. And, and the question is how much foreign support can uh, can Ortega really marshal? Uh, the Russians have been interested in, in deploying forces into the region, uh, potentially giving uh, the Nicaraguans more aid. Uh, that, that could be a critical factor uh, yet as the regime... Continues its crackdown and tries not to run out of steam. uh, Of course, as they consolidate more of these these remaining city halls, Uh, another question is just um, how the opposition will marshal itself. um, You know, for probably insurgent-like attacks uh, against the government, uh, against uh, government forces that are rolling up. Uh, these territories and and that are forcing out, as as you said, these charity organizations. So um, certainly something to watch kind of that that tit for tat uh, between Ortega and the opposition ongoing.
0: Well, and, and what does this mean for the stability of the country politically, economically and socially, Jack?
9: I mean, I, I think you're gonna sort of see everything kind of continue to, to fall off a cliff uh, as, as we've seen just generally in the region. Uh, countries that are faced with civil strife like this face economic paralysis. Uh, of course, we've seen that in, in Haiti uh, over the past year since the assassination of Juvenal Moise. Um, uh, just a, a serious slowdown uh, in all forms of daily life, basically, as, as going to school, opening a business becomes much more difficult as the fighting is ongoing. Uh, but the question is going to be uh, how so- how solid is Ortega's control uh, and how solid is the Sandinista Party control uh, versus any opposition that can kind of be marshaled uh, without any foreign support.
0: As Jack said, it's been a year since Haiti's president, Jovenel Moïse, was assassinated and authorities have yet to identify and arrest all those responsible. Since then, violence has soared in Haiti. Joyce, how is the government managing the fallout?
7: Well, I mean, it's terrible, uh, and I, I have to, you know, apologize to our listeners. Every headline we've covered uh, this morning has been just terrible and devastating uh, news. But in Haiti, uh, it's, uh, you know, a state of anarchy. It's economic meltdown. Uh, we're seeing an average of uh, seven kidnappings uh, a day, and uh, as as we've discussed before, Jen, this is the Western Hemisphere's poorest nation and gang violence is just uh, has gone out of control. Uh, you have a case where the gangs are uh, more powerful than than the state, than the police, um, and, uh, you know, U.S., uh, uh, European countries, they back uh, Prime Minister uh, Henry, but he has been completely ineffective. He can't even uh, uh, allow uh, the investigation into uh, the assassination of his uh, uh, predecessor, Moisco, go, uh, uh, go through, so... Uh, It's really uh, alarming because we're seeing the disintegration uh, of the state uh, with all uh, what that means, you know, the economic... Uh, impact and uh, the stability of uh, of the Western Hemisphere, and there doesn't seem to be an, an end in sight or an international uh, plan to do anything for Haiti, uh, whether led by the U.S. or the United Nations or others. Well, and Jack,
0: what are the complications uh, around sending international aid into Haiti? Because, let's be very honest, the the results of that aid, the benefits of that aid, has has been mixed.
9: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's right, Jan. When when you look at uh, the earthquake aid that's that's gone in, when you also just look at um, the propensity for gang violence in that country, uh, the notion that you could be sending in uh, UN folks with with blue hats that could face violence, that could face threats, uh, or that the aid could just end up in the wrong place. Uh, there's no desire to do it, and and also, I mean, you look at the Biden administration, as as Joyce pointed out, uh, Latin America just has not been an issue of focus. The Caribbean has not been an issue of focus. For this administration. And so while you're dealing with Ukraine, uh, you're trying to, to send the president to the Middle East um, to potentially move towards a normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Um, something that's fallen way on the back burner uh, has been this region and certainly Haiti is is really last of, of list on priorities. So this is something that could drag out for a long time and we could see Haiti descend even further in into this type of chaos
0: well and Joyce is it clear what the people of Haiti are asking for what they want
7: I mean, the people are are terrified. There, many have fled since the assassination of uh, uh, Moise. Uh, you know, the average uh, uh, the average uh, person they they live on uh, three dollars uh, a day. Uh, so uh, they're they're desperate for the return uh, of uh, of law and order. But but it's it's only uh, so much that they can do, as uh, you know, the gangs have uh, grown uh more powerful in the last year especially uh you know in port- Prince and uh, and main cities uh so uh, I think they're mostly uh feeling uh helpless and uh there is no uh, uh political uh and uh, insight for this.
0: Well, let's wrap on some news out of China. This week, the head of the FBI and the head of British intelligence came together to raise alarms about the Chinese government. FBI Director Christopher Wray spoke at MI5's London headquarters alongside the agency's Director General, Ken McCallum. And together, they warned business leaders about the threat posed by Chinese espionage and cyber attacks. Here's a brief part of that joint address.
9: The most game-changing challenge we face comes from the Chinese Communist Party,
4: It's covertly applying pressure across the globe. This might feel abstract, but it's real and it's pressing. The Chinese government is set on stealing your technology, whatever it is that makes your industry tick, and using it to undercut your business and dominate your market. And they're set on using every tool at their disposal to do it.
0: Jack, briefly, why were these warnings issued to business leaders specifically? well i think it's
9: it's twofold right you see the the constant drumbeat of this chinese ip and cybersecurity threat and this really hit home for the united states during the pandemic when we saw the the houston consulate being used specifically as as us government officials alleged to snoop on american vaccine technology so we see basically china using uh, not only Um, their unofficial leg, but also their embassies as global outposts uh, for this IP stealing, this IP theft, uh, as well as a cyber arm. But the fascinating thing, too, uh, is in the past few months, we've seen China really expand their tendrils in an unofficial way using the Workers' Party Department. These, these are not Chinese officials, but these are Chinese diaspora going into regions like the South Pacific, uh, basically funneling money towards officials there uh, to try and push them away from the United States and, and Western allies. So this is really part and parcel, uh, really an unprecedented press conference uh, for the West to try and find a response to this, this drumbeat of Chinese pressure.
0: We'll wrap it there. That's Jack Dutch. He's Foreign Policy's Pentagon and National Security Reporter. Jack, thanks for speaking with us.
9: Thank you so much, Jen.
0: Also with us today, Joyce Karam, Senior Correspondent for The National. Joyce, thanks for your time. Thank you. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Mike Kid is our sound designer and engineer, and Barb Anchiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Stay safe, have a great weekend, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.